morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Monday, June the 13th, and here are some of the stories we are covering for you this morning. Armed men in Nigeria have freed 11 out of more than 60 passengers of an Abuja Kaduna train who were abducted in late March of this year. Kaduna-based newspaper publisher and member of the negotiation team Tukuru Mamu made the announcement in the publication Desert Herald on Saturday. He said released victims include six females and five male passengers and that they were set free in the Kidandan forest where they were picked up. The spokesperson for South Sudan, President Salva Kiir, says the country is disappointed about the postponement of Pope Francis' upcoming visit to South Sudan. People of South Sudan were uh, so jubilant and uh, expecting the visit of the pontiff for the first time in history. This was going to be second only to uh, the secession. That is Ateni Wek Ateni, spokesperson for South Sudan President Salva Kiir. And on the final day of his visit to the DRC, Belgium's King Philippe visited the hospital of Nobel Prize laureate Dr. Dennis Mukwege in the eastern city of Bukavu. Those stories and sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, armed men in Nigeria have freed 11 out of more than 60 passengers of an Abuja Kaduna train who were abducted in late March, bringing the number of released passengers to 14. Timothy Obiezu reports from Ondo State. Kaduna-based newspaper publisher and member of the negotiation team Tukuru Mamu made the announcement in the publication Desert Herald on Saturday. He said released victims include six females and five male passengers and that they were set free in the Kidandan forest where they were picked up. Mamu said the armed men had initially agreed to free all the female passengers who were kidnapped. He also said the move was facilitated by Muslim cleric Ahmad Gumi and that they're negotiating the release of the remaining hostages. On March 28, gunmen bombed the tracks of the moving train in Kaduna and opened fire on passengers scrambling to safety. Nine people were killed and dozens went missing. VOA had reported Kaduna resident Gideon Gambo's two brothers were among the missing passengers. Gambo says he received news from the negotiators that both of them are among those who were recently freed. So my brothers and the other lady that worked with them uh, was among the ones that were, that were released. Then Abuja, I don't know where exactly, so I'm planning on coming to Abuja tomorrow by God's grace. The guy that actually was the one doing all the negotiations called me on Monday to ask me um, to identify my brothers on the picture, which I did. So it's, um, it, it's real, it's true. Nigerian authorities and police have yet to comment on the incident. Last month, security experts warned that the negotiations for the release of the remaining hostages could be deadlocked after the kidnappers demanded authorities free their men who had been captured. Nigeria is seeing a wave of violence across many regions, roughly one year ahead of the country's next elections. Last Sunday, armed gangs invaded a church detonated explosives and shot at worshippers, killing at least 40 people. On Thursday, authorities in Kaduna said gunmen killed 32 people in an attack and burned many houses. 
Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Understate, Nigeria. And Pope Francis has apologized to the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan for having to cancel his visit because of health problems, saying that he hopes to make the visit once his condition improves. The Vatican announced late last week that the pontiff's July 2nd to 7th trip had been postponed indefinitely because of his knee ailment and did not want to jeopardize the results of the therapy that he was undergoing for his knee. And the spokesperson for South Sudan, President Salva Kiir, says the country is disappointed about the postponement of Pope Francis' visit. But Ateni Wek Ateni says that South Sudanese understand the reasons for the suspension and are praying for, for the pontiff's speedy recovery. Wek Ateni Wek tells VOA's James Bati that the pontiff's visit was going to be the second most important event in South Sudan history after the country's secession from Sudan in 2011. The reaction is, uh, is, is quite disappointing for the people because people of South Sudan were uh, so jubilant and uh, expecting the visit of the pontiff for the first time in history. This was going to be second only to uh, the secessions, the time when South Sudan seceded from Sudan through a referendum. That was the top event in the history, and the, the Pope visit would have been number two. So people are quite disappointed, but they do understand that um, Pope Tansels is coming to Juba on health issue. So people of South Sudan are praying for the pontiff to quickly recover, and uh, they hope after His Holiness uh, Pope Francis recovered, they hope that he will still resume coming to South Sudan and the DRC. I'm sure one of the reasons that the Pope chose South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo is because of the crisis in those countries, perhaps hoping that uh, maybe his presence will help bring about some kind of uh, peace. To that respect, I want to ask you, what was South Sudan willing to show to the Pope in terms of peace in the country? Well, there's no more crisis in South Sudan. South Sudan was uh, hoping Pope would be in Juba to send a signal to the whole world that uh, Juba is a place to live and is a place that anyone who is willing to, uh, to invest in the country and anyone who is willing to, to have any kind of development in the country would, would be actually uh, thinking that, you know, since the pontiff has been to Juba for two days, uh, the country is peaceful. This is what only we want uh, to happen and we also want the front to pray for the sustainable peace in the country. We have already peaced, but we need a sustainable one. Make me understand again, uh, sir, as for the level of peace, uh, there are negotiations that have been going on between South Sudanese. Where are we? Well, uh, actually, uh, the peace between the government and the whole out was negotiated by San Gideon, which is uh, the Vatican itself. So um, the negotiation is, is ongoing. Uh, on the time of the stakeholders that have already been part of this government, or the national government, since 2020, they have uh, unified the command because the security uh, chapter was the one that delayed it a bit. But since of the unified command has been uh, put in place, sooner or later the forces will be actually graduated. I have been away for five or six months, and I'm hearing almost the same thing. That means nothing much has happened in terms of peace in South Sudan. Am I right? No, I'm not right. If nothing has happened, people would have been a war. But this is not a war. It is a negotiation that, the, you know, between parties that are already in the government. And so they do it, although it is slow, 
but all uh, that's expressed the political will to implement the agreement you know with Liberal and Spirit. Mr. Atain Wek Atain, thank you so much again always for speaking with us on Daybreak Africa. Thank you, Gary Thank you. That was Atani Wek Atani, spokesperson for South Sudan President Salva Kiir, was speaking to VOS James Bati from the capital, Juba. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. On the final day of his visit to the DRC, Belgium's King Philippe visited the hospital of Nobel Prize laureate Dr. Dennis Mukwege, co-winner of the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize for his fight against sexual violence in the eastern city of Bukavu. King Philippe, who stopped short of offering a formal apology, went farther than his predecessors by acknowledging that the Belgian colonial regime under King Leopold II had inflicted pain and humiliation on the people of Congo through what he said was a mixture of paternalism, discrimination and racism. Scholars say that even though King Leopold II was responsible for the death of millions of Congolese, the monarch's name and image was still celebrated in Belgium even as evidence of his misdeeds had been documented over the decade. However, as Professor Adam Hochschild, author of the best-selling book King Leopold's Ghost, tells me in the second part of our conversation, that changed in 2020 when the protests sweeping the world after George Floyd's death in the U.S. galvanized the movement in Europe to confront Belgium's colonial past. One thing which did happen in Belgium, as it did in many countries around the world, the reverberations from the uh, televised murder of George Floyd uh, two and a half years ago really sent shockwaves around the world. It made people in many countries much more aware of the histories of racism that so many countries have. Uh, In the United States, we saw the the taking down of statues of Confederate uh, generals and so forth across the American South. In Belgium, uh, statues of King Leopold came down. They had been regularly defaced for years where people would throw a bucket of red paint over a statue of the king or something. Now a number of them have come down. Not all of them, but some of them have. Mm. Now, there were many European powers that colonized different parts of Africa and many stayed for a long time. But what, what would you say made Leopold stand out? Was it more because he literally owned that part of the Congo, or how much suffering his rule brought to the Congolese? Well, I think you're right. The fact that one man owned all of this territory for 23 years was really unusual and different from the colonization that took place elsewhere in Africa. This made him a target of human rights campaigners who were outraged by the slave labor system he developed to exploit the ivory and wild rubber that grew in the Congo. However, when you look at what was happening in surrounding countries that had the same natural resource, and the big resource at this time, about 120 years ago, was wild rubber, because there was a tremendous rubber boom all over the world. They just invented the inflatable tire. They just invented the automobile. Everybody wanted rubber. Um, Other colonies in Africa also had wild rubber. The French Congo 
uh, today the Republic of Congo across the river from Leopold's Congo, the Cameroons, which Germany owned, uh, northern Angola under the Portuguese, and seeing how much profit Leopold was making, they all used the same forced labor system that he developed. And in those colonies where we have accurate statistics, the most accurate are from the French Congo, the death rate was just as high as it was in Leopold's Congo. But there was this thing of Leopold's Congo being owned by one man. He was also one man who was a king of a rather small country. And so the human rights campaigners focused on him. There weren't the political complications that you would get if you focused on a big country like France or Germany. So Leopold kind of became the butt of this uh, worldwide mm. human rights campaign, people largely ignoring that a similar system for exploiting uh, African labor was in use uh, in other colonies as well. That was Professor Adam Hochschild. He's the author of the best-selling book, King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. As tensions continue to grow between Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo, on Saturday, the Rwanda Defense Force announced that the two soldiers allegedly abducted by the DRC have been released and have safely returned to Rwanda. Kigali says the soldiers were abducted from the Rwandan territory, an allegation denied by Kinshasa. Their freedom is a result of mediation and intervention by the African Union. Eugene Wimana has more from Kigali. The statement from Rwanda's military released on Saturday reads in part, following the kidnap of the soldiers of the Rwanda Defense Force on patrol along the Rwanda DRC border on 28 May and the subsequent diplomatic interventions between the heads of state of Angola, DRC and Rwanda, the RDF is pleased to announce that the two soldiers are now safely back in Rwanda. Since the two soldiers were abducted in May, the African Union, through its designated mediator, Angolan President Yuao Lorenzo, made several phone calls to DRC President Felix Kisakedi, urging him to urgently release the men. The DRC accused Rwanda of having used the soldiers to back the M23 rebel group and to infiltrate the country. Rwanda's Foreign Affairs Minister Vincent Biruta categorically denies the accusation. We cannot attack a country and confront a national army with just two junior soldiers. So there, are, there is no presence of Rwandan soldiers in DRC, and from there, there could not be any collaboration with any other force present in Eastern DRC if there is no presence of Rwandan soldiers. Fighting continues between the Congolese army and the M23 group in Eastern DRC, as do incidents that cross over into Rwanda. Rwanda Defense Force announced on Friday that the DRC fired two 122mm rockets into northern Rwanda, but it says there were no casualties. The M23 is trying to seize many parts of the DRC. Conflict there has been rampant and have become regional. Rebel groups in eastern DRC come from almost all neighboring countries. Jen Uimana for VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. The Malawi parliament is calling for the suspension of the sale of about 100,000 metric tons of maize to Zimbabwe, citing looming hunger in Malawi and irregular procurement processes in the deal. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. 
Last month, Malawi's National Green Market um, Agriculture Development and Marketing Corporation or ADMAC and Green Millers Association of Zimbabwe signed a 22 million US dollar maize deal which was expected to start in July under the contract. ADMAC was expected to sell about 100,000 metric tons of the green to Zimbabwe currently facing maize shortages because of poor harvests. However, the Malawi parliament wants the contract cancelled saying the country needs to keep its crops toward of hunger. Samia Suleiman is the chairperson for a committee on agriculture in the legislature. He says it is concerning that a 50-kilogram bag of maize is currently selling at about 15 US dollars from about 7 US dollars in January. Currently, as a country, we don't have sufficient stocks of maize to feed us. Uh, at the moment, Malawians are paying close to 15000 for a bag of maize. At this time, maize is supposed to be cheap because people are harvesting. But maize is at the highest price, giving a sign that uh, we have less maize on the ground. And we don't know the output uh, that is there this year. The harvest doesn't look that promising. Suleiman also says another reason for cancelling the deal is that Admark failed to follow proper procurement procedures. The board is selling this maize without the knowledge of the management. Imagine a whole board member drafting an agreement, a memorandum of understanding to sell 100,000 metric tons on a plain paper, not even a letterhead of Admark. Uh, something is not adding up. Alexander Gusamba Zonzi is the board chairperson for ADMAC. He said ADMAC management was well represented in all the board meetings concerning the maize sale to Zimbabwe. However, he says the decision to sell the maize to Zimbabwe was based on inaccurate information provided by the Green Marketing Corporation. Because when we were discussing with the Zimbabweans, the general manager did assure us that we have about 165,000 metric tons. And we thought that was enough to take uh, the 100,000 metric tons to Zimbabwe. But now we are learning these things. It is as if deliberately information was withheld from the board. Josie said the ADMAC decided to sell maize from last year's harvest to meet some of its debt and to create storage space for the maize they planned to buy from farmers this year. In the meantime, Malawi's Minister of Agriculture says it has written the country's green market, um, ADMAC, to suspend the sales to Zimbabwe. Media reports in Zimbabwe this week say that the country needs just over 2 million tons of maize to address food shortages there. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Debrek Africa continues. In Kenya, a new opinion poll shows opposition leader Raila Odinga is the preferred presidential candidate if elections were held today. The survey interviewed 9,000 people across all the 290 constituencies in 47 counties. The results show Odinga ahead with 42%, while Deputy President William Ruto comes in second with 38%. And as Atieno Odiamba reports from Nairobi, neither of the two candidates would secure the 50% plus one vote, which the constitution requires to be declared the winner.
In the data released on Wednesday, just two days after he launched his manifesto, opposition leader Rela Odinga and his running mate Martha Karua lead with 42%, while Deputy President William Ruto comes second with 38%, another 20% are undecided. The report adds that Odinga would lead in 20 counties, including the capital Nairobi, while Ruto would be on top in 16 counties. That leaves 11 battleground counties to decide who the next president will be. Angela Ambito is the chief executive officer of Infotrack Research and Consulting Company. Speaking during a press conference, she said the survey, which was conducted between 23rd and 27th May 2022, showed Odinga would garner 9.3 million votes to Ruto's 8.4 million votes. However, they both failed to meet the constitutional threshold of 50% plus one vote needed to be president in the first round of voting. So what this says is they already meet the threshold of having 25% in half of the counties. What none of them is meeting right now is the 50 plus one. An initial survey showed Ruto as the leading candidate. This was before the candidates picked their running mates. According to political analysts, Odinga's rise in popularity has been attributed to his choice of running mate. For the first time in Kenya's history, a woman, Martha Karua, could become Kenya's deputy President Atieno Odiambo, VOA Daybreak Africa in Nairobi, Kenya. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. With that, we go to Abuja, Nigeria with Samson Omale. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sport with the 22nd African Senior Athletics Championships, which ended on Sunday at the Cut National Sports Complex in Redute, Mauritius. Kenya topped the medals table for a second straight edition with 23 medals. Kenya held 11 medals on the fifth and final day, five gold, three silver, and three bronze medals to finish top of the table for the fifth time after 1982 in Cairo, 1984 in Rabat, 2010 in Nairobi in 2018 in Asama. South Africa followed next with 36 medals, 9 gold, 13 silver and 14 bronze with Nigeria coming in third with 11 medals, that's 5 gold, 3 silver and 3 bronze medals. In cycling news, Rwandan Moise Mugish on Sunday was crowned the winner of the Todu Cameroon 2022 race. The 25-year-old put himself in pole position to win the race after his performance on Saturday earned him a yellow jersey with 33-second lead at the top of the general classification ahead of Sunday's final stage. He won the accolade after beating the likes of Jordan Andrev, who rides for Bulgarian cycling team. He becomes the second Rwandan rider to win the 2.2 race after Bonaventure Nwaziyamana in 2018. In football news, Uganda's women's national football team are the winners of the 2022 Sakafa Senior Women's Championships after overcoming Burundi in the final on Saturday at the Fufa Technical Center in Injeru. The Crested Cranes secured a 3-1 win to emerge the winners for the first time ever. George Lutalo is the coach of the Crested Cranes. It has been a tough game, but we've managed to win the game. Burundi team, I understand we played it in the group. They came knowing how we can play them, but still we had to use our extra effort to win them. So the game has been a hard one, but we've managed to win it. I thank everybody. Ethiopia beats Tanzania 2-1 to settle for bronze and the game played before the final. Elsewhere in Egypt, 
Al-Hotley's executive manager, Saeed Shalabi, has all but confirmed that Pitsu Masumane will remain in his position as the club's head coach. The confirmation is coming on the heels of the rumors that the South African tactician was set to be sacked. Despite his notable achievements in Egypt, Musmani has been under scrutiny recently with former Al-Hotley players urging the club board to replace the 57-year-old. Shalabi believes Pitsu Masumane will continue with the club as the board is pleased with the team's performance under his watch. And finally, the South African national cricket team, the Proteas, overcame early and late stumbles in their chase of a modest target to win the second T20I against India by four wickets on Sunday. Having won the toss and put India into bot, South Africa this time managed to peg the host back early on. It was comeback man Henrich Clarkson who turned out to be the unlikely hero with a career best of 81 as South Africa once again unwitted India by four wickets. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. That's it for this edition of Debrek Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bo-